This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So this is going to sound funny initially, especially coming off that song. But we have been so focused on U.S.-China relations. Yet there's another very, very That song was not Chinese. (laughs) Well, stay with me. Ah. There is another very, very important relationship that's worth keeping an eye on as well. And that's the one between... Europe and the United States. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Italy. We're going to talk about so much going on right now. Here with an informed view, though, on the Europe and the U.S. relationship is Valerio De Moli. He's managing partner and CEO at the consulting company, the European House Ambrosetti, along with our Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Valerio, Peter, good to have you here with Jason and myself. I want to kick it off with you, Valerio, because... It is. We focus so much on U.S. and China, but the relationship between the United States and Europe and the European region is a really, really important one. How do you see it right now? Where do you see it going? Well, thank you for having us here with you. It's a great honor. Uh, well, it was the first time since uh, ever that President Trump invited the Prime Minister of Italy at his table in the recent United Nations dinner that was hosted by the President. Um, and that means a lot in terms of analogy uh, of the Italian new government to uh, the Trump po- mm-hmm. politics, the Trumponomics, so to say. Um, uh, Apparently, they are very close, and uh, what Mr. Salvini in particular is suggesting to go back to the strength of the past and to repatriate manufacturing in Italy and to uh, fight the migrants and to close the countries and so on and so forth is very similar to to what was put in place with Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, having said that, uh, we are facing in Europe a very delicate situation uh, where uh, the mm, political leadership of Italy, but consider also the weaknesses of Merkel in Germany, consider the gilets jaunes protests against Macron in right. Spain, consider what is happening in Spain uh, with the emerging far extremists from the right consider the Brexit deal, which is very complex. So the situation is highly delicate, and particularly with the next May elections, political elections of the European Parliament, we are going to face uh, some key risks right. uh, of uh, difficulties. So come on in, Peter Coy, because we talk to you a lot, Carol and I do, because we love talking to you and uh-huh. because you're so smart. Um, but you look at this so globally and you know we've talked a lot to you about this uneasiness around Europe today you know in the headlines today a transition in the German government or certainly in Merkel's political party where she is designated a successor looks like a bit of a mini Merkel that went her way which is that went her sort of a victory for Europe versus some of the uh, Merkel was clearly a was is a pro-European right. politician, so she got somebody in her mold. 
And, and so pick up a, a little bit on what Valeria was saying, because underneath all of that is this populism and populism, I should note, that has been stoked by none other than Steve Bannon, who yeah, was very successful in getting Donald Trump elected president. As you look at what this means economically, what are the consequences here? I mean, populism, we had a discussion before we came on the air about the in Italy is a very interesting case because you have a populist government with two parties that are populist kind of different ways, one more from the left, one more from the right. So I was asking, uh, where, where does the business community fall in Italy? Uh, Berlusconi's been discredited. Renzi kind of fell from favor. Right. And then there's a whole bunch of small parties. So it seems like business is sort of latching onto the league, La Lega, the, the, the party of Salvini, sort of as the, the best they can come up with. Is that, that way you would put it? Yes, I fully agree with, the, with this background. And uh, in fact, uh, when you asked me earlier whether this government will break up, uh, you have all the elements to say that it is impossible for them to keep going on. But on the other side, you have also uh, to be aware of the fact that a breakup is literally impossible mm-hmm. and for two basic reasons. One is that there are no alternatives. Because if you look at the center right, all polls are showing that Berlusconi cannot be above 10% of the votes. So there is basically no alternatives on the center right. If you look at the center left, you have a big discussions about um, a number of semi-leaders, including Renzi, Minetti, mm-hmm. Emiliano, uh, De Luca, and a number of others who, who are relatively unknown to the interna- international scene, but also almost unknown to the domestic scene. So it's a highly fragmented. And uh, second reasons is that um, the Five Star Movement statutes doesn't allow them to be recandidated for the third time. Right. So two-thirds of them will not have any job at all. So why they should leave this sure. position? So that, that is my than, assessment. Deeper than we usually get on Italian domestic politics but on the show. But what it is also, I like kind of the bigger, broader theme, and unfortunately we've run out of time, but it's just that idea of populism around the globe, and I feel like it's not going away anytime soon, and it's going to continue to kind of create this churn and anxiety, certainly when it comes to the investment environment. Valerio, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Valerio De Moli, Managing Partner, CEO at the European House, Ambrosetti, along with our own Peter Coy, Economics Editor at Bloomberg. We're talking about the labor market. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, some analysis when it comes to this morning's jobs report. Because U.S. jobs and wages did rise, uh, rose, rise, rose. I thought you had forgotten in the intervening five (laughs) minutes that it was jobs day because it was so back of mind. You're like, we're talking about jobs. Why are we talking about jobs? Why are we doing this? Oh, jobs day. Jobs Jobs day. day. Steve Blitz is being very patient, sitting next to us saying, I guess they'll eventually get to me. (laughs) He's chief U.S. economist at T.S. Lombard. Great to have him back. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here as always. I love the new studio, by the way. It's, it's pretty very, cool, right? It's very cool. It's very cool. If you, you know, we can beam you up to a planet. It's just it feels whatever like you need. Very Star Trek. Whatever you need. It's very yeah, Star Trekky. Uh, so this report, um, good, bad, indifferent. What does it mean? Well, I think it's if you're looking for signs that the economy is continuing to grow and that consumers are going to continue to spend because income and employment is up, it's a good number. Uh, you know, when you look at what is 
neutral. Now, I'm not talking about interest rates, but neutral in the sense of oh, okay. balancing the number of workers coming into the labor force versus those going out, you get a number around 100 and 150,000, somewhere in that range. And so if we hit job, that, we hit that, we hit that. And if jobs today. go down into that range, the Fed's not going to be unhappy because that to them will signify that you have sort of a non-inflationary growth path. So the, the real message out of this, these numbers is that when you look around the edges and different things uh, and different, da- different data, you begin to see the labor market morphing and moving slowly towards that more neutral level, which gives the Fed a little bit more reason right. to say after December, you know, we'll raise in December, the whole world's expecting it. So that's, right. it's a non-event. It's about their forward guidance. And then they can go to a very neutral, flat forward guidance and do what Powell said back in August, you know, channel his inner Greenspan in the mid-90s, just sit back. And watch winner winner chicken dinner, is which would make it. one particular uh, fan of Twitter uh, very happy. The president who does not want the Fed to go. No one really wants the Fed to go too fast, but he doesn't want them to raise rates. Probably even in in December. Uh, do do the rest of the data that you see sort of coming in? Do they support a maybe a rethinking of what we have long expected for 2019 in terms of hikes? Uh, well, I've been thinking one at most in March. Really? So, yeah. So, and I I went there back in the summer. Interesting. So, uh, so I've been there for a while. So it's not a rethinking on my part. Right. But I think the way to sort of think about it, not to use that term again, um, but the way to think about it in 2019 is. Look, the Fed's gotten to a level. The economy's clearly slowing down. The interest-sensitive sectors are. Um, and so you might as well, if, in, if you know you have a lot of headwinds coming and inflation's not an issue and the wage numbers, they were good, but it's not showing this rapid acceleration for where we've been, then it pays to step back. Because the one thing that I think people aren't really fully accepting, and I call this sort of the new conundrum that the Fed faces, is you have a lot of very normal-looking kind of numbers. Because if you look at the funds rate against growth, you can't sit here and say that interest rates are particularly tight. Mm. But here's the difference. And I think in, in the behavioral finance tells you these people think in, they jump in discrete steps as opposed to continuous. Mm. When the funds rate got over 2%, a bell went off. And all of a sudden, you're sitting here with all this forward uncertainty, and three-month commercial paper will get you 275. It's been 10 years since we've been there. And the markets, the equity markets, need to absorb that reality that you don't have to own stock for yield anymore. Well, this is what we constantly talk about. The magazine has done a bunch of stories, right? You start to look at the equity yield versus the fixed income yield, right, or the treasury yield. And you can make that yield with, I guess, a safer asset, right, in terms of a safer investment. Yeah, absolutely. And why wouldn't you, maybe? You would. You absolutely would. Yeah. Now, you know, one thing that has not yet occurred. Just got about 30 seconds. Is the banks aren't paying deposit interest rates to the market right. rates yet. And when they eventually start to, and it's it's really criminal in quotes, but it's criminal that they're not. Because when they start, they're right. going to start seeing a lot more spending 
out of people because they're going to start getting positive returns on their deposits. But don't don't expect a CD rate with 17% anytime right. soon. <laughs> no. If only. <laughs> I'm if, just saying. If ever. Only. Steve Blitz, Chief U.S. Economist for T.S. Lombard, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you for your context, especially since, you yeah. know, Jobs Day. Well, it is Jobs Day, but I do, it'll, uh, I'm curious about that December meeting, and I've been hearing other folks talk about maybe one rate move uh, come 2019. Well, it has been a bit of an upside-down market over the last week, over the last couple months even, Carol. And pardon me, I'm going to just drop a few names here. You know, we have had a chance to talk to Jim Coulter of TPG. We had a chance to talk to John Gray of Blackstone. Would you like me to pick them up from the floor? Can you just pick those up? Uh, John Connaughton from Bain. I'll keep going. But these are all huge names in private equity. These have been great conversations. And all of them are essentially saying volatility? Not so bad for private equity. Maybe in the midterm, the short term may slow things down. Exactly. Let's get a gut check on that. Paul Aversano, Managing Director of the Private Equity Services Group at Alvarez and Marsal, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Paul, how are people feeling about uh, M&A amid all this volatility? Well, I think you need to uh, to bifurcate M&A. There's private equity M&A, and those are the people that you're talking to, and that's where I spend a lot of my time at Alvarez and Marsal, but there's also corporate M&A. I think what you've referenced before from prior guests when it comes to private equity M&A, absolutely. I think there was so much dry powder, last count, almost a trillion and a half sitting on the sidelines. The volatility will help hopefully adjust record high asset valuations. One thing that may have been missed is it will take time for that to happen. Right. Sellers who used to be able to get a certain valuation for their company will have to realize that they may not be able to achieve that now. So you're probably looking at six to 12 months of maybe sort of a holding period. Right, because you're dealing with both the buyers and the sellers. Buyers and sellers, right. right. So I think what happens is there could be a pause while people kind of adjust to what I'll call the new normal. Um, But then, you know, I mean, listen, with all that pent-up capital looking for alpha, there's no doubt that from a private equity perspective, you have to transact. Well, and it's a really interesting point that – and you were in total agreement with a lot of the people that that we mentioned because essentially what they're saying is they're going to be looking at valuations in real time. But then the seller is going to say, but wait, look at the last – especially in a Mm public-to-private situation. They're going to be looking back over the last, say, 12 months and saying this is not – this is not my stock price right now may not reflect the total value of my company. 100% correct. What's interesting, though, on the corporate transaction side, because you're reading about a lot of larger corporate transactions, that's where I think you'll see things get a little more hung up, particularly public companies that are using stock as a currency. The uncertainty and the volatility in the stock price causes real problems for corporate transactions um, and and valuations. So so right there, I think, is the larger corporate transactions is where you're going to start to see more impactful uh, issues with the volatility. So when you're talking with your buyers and sellers, though, on that side of the business, I am curious when they look at the market environment, the executives that you're talking with, um, are they saying, you know, we're seeing some really ugly things coming in the economy. We want to get out before it gets too bad. I'm just I'm just curious from the folks that you talk to, right. what are you hearing about this environment? Because we have a lot of people who come in and say, I see all the volatility. I get it, but we're still going to have growth in 2019. We're not necessarily talking about recession. It may not be as great as it's been, but I am curious from the tidbits that you pick, you know, pick up from your conversations, How would you assess the environment going into 2019? Well, I mean, that's exactly where I spend my time. I would say, um, you know, there's two components to this, and you have to bifurcate it. I I wouldn't, 
you know, I don't have to tell you, there's the reality and the fact base, which shows strong corporate earnings growth and things like that. So the economy, you know, look at the jobs report that came out today, mm-hmm. very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's the, the reality, but then there's the psychological impact of the markets. And I think there is, you know, the, the wild volatility that we see in the public equity markets, you know, it hurts confidence in transactions. You know, no one wants to catch the falling knife. I mean, we have clients calling us up saying, hey, you know, we want to sell our business. We think we need to do it now. Um, so, you know, there's the fact-based reality, and then there's the perception and, and you know, CEO But that's real. That's very real. I would say the psychological perception of the markets is probably more real than even the fact-based. And I think you have a disconnect right now between the facts and what the, you know, perception right. is as far as reality. Well, it's also interesting when you think about the news that we've had out of GM over the last couple of weeks, which I think was really jarring to people on a number of levels. One, the political backlash, mm-hmm. uh, especially at a time when we have an administration that's been jobs, jobs, jobs. All you have to do is read the president's Twitter feed right. uh, to pick up uh, on that. But also the reality that we are in a different sort of economy and you do have CEOs who are having to make de- decisions around job cuts around divestitures and all sorts of things that don't always signal, hey, this economy is amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, another perfect example of that, I mean, you're right in the auto world. I mean, that's a perfect example. Another perfect example is the inverted yield curve that right. we get this week. I mean, you know, if you, if you, there are a lot of- Part of it inverted. Part of it inverted. But still, something inverting is, is, is not, concerning, yeah. right? Given right. the past history here. So I think when you look at on balance- the things that are positive relative to the economy going forward versus the things that are potentially negative, on balance, there's probably more negativity looking forward than there is positive statements. Potential negativity. I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, that's why I say, (laughs) yeah, you're right. I mean, whether it's U.S.-China trade, I mean, that's real. Um, You know, whether or not there's overheated parts of the market, whether or not growth slows down substantially, right? There's some really serious things that if they play out, it's going to certainly impact the environment. What's going to happen with interest rates and inflation, oil. I mean, you know, there's so many variables in this vortex of volatility is what I'm referring to it as. I've never seen, and I feel like I say this every time I come here, but I've never seen more variables in my 25 plus year career, more variables moving at the same time, impacting public markets, M&A activity. I mean, and and, I went to the Economic Club of New York had an event two nights ago where they had former Treasury Secretaries Paulson and, uh, and Geithner. And what they said, which I thought was very interesting, was that, you know, forget about the U.S. They think the next financial troubles is going to be coming from somewhere outside of the U.S. that we need to look out for. I agree. That's what their guidance was. Did they say where? Well, they didn't say specifically where, but we talked a whole bunch of different things from North Korea to Saudi Arabia to Italy to Brexit. I mean, you can pick your pick what you want, but well, there's a lot and, of things out there. China. And Hank Paulson spent a lot of time in China. China. He knows more about that than uh, most people out it, there. If you had to zero in on one area that you think could be potential trouble coming in 2019, where might it be? Just get about 30 seconds. I would say the two biggest things right now, as of today, and that can change on a daily basis, number one is the trade issue with China. And you know that's always been much more than just trade. There's yeah. a lot opening yeah. up the markets, technology. It's complicated, yeah. to say and, the least. And the other thing I would say is what's going to happen with interest rates. That's the yeah. other thing that's really gyrating right now. Interest rates, inflation, and all that. And I would also throw the traditional technological disruption. That's continuing and not going to abate anytime soon. And it's like what, you know, Mary Barr was doing, right? She's saying, listen, I got to think about the GM for the future. And I'm sorry, I don't want to cut jobs, but I got to make sure that this company's around. And notable that her deputy goes to run the self-driving unit. Exactly. Paul Eversano, thank you so much. Nice to have you here with uh, Alvarez and Marcel. 
Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, you're listening to Bloomberg. You suddenly realize that this could be the start of something big. Talk about that you really are moving around to this. Boy, that's a scary dance, Jason Kelly. It's a white man's dance. <laughs> There's a little white man overbite with that, right? A little white man, 40 something year old dance. Come oh on. my God, stop. This is why stop. we're on the radio. I'm not going to be able to get this out of my head. All right, we're going to talk about startups. Jeff, I'm so sorry. Uh, we want to bring in Jeff Grabo. He's America's venture capital leader at Ernst Young uh, on the phone in San Jose, California. You are so glad Grabo's you are like, not here in our Lord, studio. I'm glad I'm because... all the way across the country from this. It's a little, it's a, it's a little Friday wackadoo. Uh, let's talk. It's already three twenty on the on here on the East Coast, Jeff. But we're happy to talk. I to you. was just there this morning. So, oh my oh, god, how did you do gracious. that? Oh my god, I left at seven. I left at seven, and I just got in. Oh my god, we thought you might have hyperlooped back home. That's amazing. That is crazy town. Hey, let's talk about uh, the VC world. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, there's a lot of money sloshing around. We're getting pretty excited about some big exits next year, whether it's Lyft or Uber or Airbnb. Tell me a little bit about uh, how things uh, are looking, especially with the volatility in the market, right? Because a lot of times people certainly don't want to do an exit when there's a lot of uh, volatility in the uh, public markets. Well, we're wrapping up a banner, you know, 2018. You're going to see we're going to wrap up with about 110 to 120 billion dollars deployed into venture-backed startups, which is an all-time record. So we're coming to an end there. And looking into 2019, we kind of I'm kind of looking at three things that I see. One is we're going to continue to see strong deployment, and that's driven by a couple things in 2019. And I don't think we'll beat. 2018, but you, you could be surprised. I mean, we might be surprised, but the overhang in the venture asset class, there is a huge number of venture-backed startups that are in the pipeline that will continue to need to raise cash, regardless of what happens. And then there's um, a lot of um, technology that's being pushed into other companies that's allowing um, and big investable themes. Uh, we do expect to see a lot of exits. A lot of companies are getting ready to go public right now. And a lot of these companies haven't, you know, really haven't been exit ready. Many of them haven't even had CFOs. So, you know, they're built, they're putting in that infrastructure and making sure they're ready because it's better to be ready. Uh, and you don't want to be limited by not being ready and have windows open and close on you. So we're seeing a lot of uh, that going on. And that money needs to be round tripped. You know, the money needs to be returned. A lot of these companies are quite old. Right. Uh, and so the money does need to be returned because the VCs, I mean, they, are, they set up on 10-year cycles. And um, you can extend those funds, but they need to be returning that cash because they want to go out and raise more money. Um, and the third thing is that the you know technology has broken outside of its vertical stack, and it's being pushed in and touching all kinds of companies. And so we're seeing a lot more participants, especially on the corporate side. We're seeing a lot of interest. I spent a lot of my time in 2018 talking to our clients who believe or are exploring setting up corporate venture funds because they're seeing how technology is potentially impacting their business and they want to get ahead of that curve and they want to get exposure to the you know the innovation ecosystem so it's uh, it's a pretty interesting time right now um from what i'm from where i sit yeah so so jeff when you look at that potential for a lot of exits in 19 there are some headwinds coming at us i feel like every investor we talk to kind of picks one or two what's the one that's the biggest threat or the biggest potential cause to shut that uh, IPO window from your perspective? Well, there's two ways to look at it. It could be, you know, with more volatility 
and some downward pressure in the market, it could make uh, multiples look not so aggressive. Yeah. So it actually might be easier to sustain aftermarket performance if you're going if you're not going out in all time. Oh, highs. interesting. So it could be a double edged sword. I mean, if you have a significant downturn, right. people might want people might want to place things on hold. But we're still seeing that momentum that we haven't seen in quite some time. And we're hearing, you know, and the venture investors are saying we need to be ready. And so that's something we haven't heard in a while. How are these and giant so, giant funds? I'm thinking um, the Vision Fund uh, that we've talked a lot about. What is it? A hundred billion dollars? Hundred billion. Getting ready and to do maybe another one. one. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how is that though impacting the VC world? Where, you know, for a long time it was you know smaller investments. You could put it through a variety of companies. But how does that those big chunk investments that something like the Vision Fund does kind of impact your environment? Just got about forty seconds left. Well, it's interesting because it's never been cheaper to start a company, yeah. but it's never been more expensive to scale. So the, <laughs> right. the curves have kind of flipped. So you're needing that, you know, at some point you need that cash to be deployed. And if you're going to get to scale and, you know, be a category winner, um, that could be something, you know, it could be something that's, that's needed and used. Although um, the market has, there is plenty of cash out there. Right. For sure. Uh, Jeff Grabo is America's venture capital leader for Ernst & Young out in San Jose, California. He was on the East Coast this morning. He's on the West Coast this afternoon. He's going to sleep well tonight. He's a hardworking man. Hey, there was a story. I was thinking about this segment we just did, but there was a story earlier on Bloomberg uh, that showed that U.S. startups are capturing a rapidly declining share of global dollars invested, and Chinese companies are grabbing more. So we're definitely seeing a shift in terms of where uh, that investment money is going. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Just a few minutes left in today's trading session, about 11 minutes to be exact. Eric Clark is portfolio manager at AccuVest Global Advisors. He is based in San Francisco, and that's where we find him on this Friday on the phone. Hey, Eric, nice to have you here. You know, uh, what a wacky week. Uh, volatility definitely back uh, in, a, in a big way. And here we are again. We're looking at, what, a 3% decline on the NASDAQ, down more than 2% on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and down about 2.4% on the S&P. It's been a really rough week, a bearish week for stocks here. I want to talk names. We want to talk names. But when you look at the macro environment and the trade. I don't know. Uh, does it make you a little bit worried that we're, we're headed for something more significant in terms of a downward trend here? You know, I, I hate to... First of all, hello, hey. um, Carol. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I, I don't... I, it's not naturally uh, my... Uh, you know, my sentiment isn't naturally negative, but yeah. the, the price action you have to listen to. You know, the headlines have been bad. And uh, the data and the economic and earnings data isn't quite as bad, but the market's telling you something's different, and you have to listen. And so, obviously, we're listening in the in the fund. Um, but I think right now you have to be a little cautious because we're we're sitting on some some support that if broken, and I kind of think that it will, 
that could usher in a much bigger move down, you know, as we head into 2019. And that always feels bad in December. Eric, what does it mean, though, for the fund? I mean, you guys have to stay invested, correct? But I am curious if you've made any kind of adjustments because of this market environment. Yeah, no, you know, when we wrote the prospectus, we wanted maximum flexibility. So, I mean, we can hold up to 40% in cash. Wow. We can own, get very defensive. We can own protective ETFs. So, you know, right now we got about 18% in cash. Only about 20% of the fund is in, is in brands that have, you know, a beta or volatility greater than the market. So we're, we're in a pretty uh, bearish, not bearish, but defensive posture. And I, I suspect that that's going to only increase if we break uh, some of the levels that I'm watching. And I know uh, Jason wants to jump in, but just quickly, how much do you have in cash then? If you can hold as much as 40%, have you updated it to what rate? Yeah, we have 18% cash right now. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Pretty, that's a, a pretty aggressive move. Yeah. So, Eric, you know, one of the things, and, and you alluded to this about we are in December, and by the way, we're in a December just after a midterm election. So history tells us that stocks tend to go up right after a, right. a midterm election. And, you know, Santa Claus is nowhere to be found in terms of uh, this rally. We keep asking people what the big drivers are. There seem to be a number Maybe rank them, you know, the top two or three in order. Is it trade? Is it the Fed? Is it economic data? How do you feel about that? Well, I think the news flow is all tariff related, Mm -hmm. but I think it's undermining the bigger issue that we, you know, we're probably at the end of the cycle. And this tariff stuff is only accelerating that potential. You know, earnings are or earnings have probably peaked, and wage growth is strong, so margins are tough. And if we get this tariff talk to go even further with 25%, that that's just you know what we do is we push, we end up uh, pushing through those price increases to the end user consumer, and this economy is 70% consumer, so that means the consumer is going to get squeezed, and mm-hmm. and companies' margins are going to get squeezed. So I, I think the market's starting to realize that there's there's Trump and tariffs meeting just the the typical cycle and and obviously we we have a bit of a buyer strike right so if there's nobody on the other end of the buy side then sellers and shorters can can have their way with things along with algorithms all right so let's talk some names and you know looking down your list of some especially some special situations you're looking at one that jumps out at me because we actually talked about it with another investor earlier this week is Dollar Tree. Um, you know, if we are going into a different sort of economic environment, a you know, a more um, depressed <laughs> economic yeah. environment, is that the the thesis around Dollar Tree, or is this a m- more specific to the name? It's actually a little bit of both. I mean, historically, all the discounters have been pretty defensive when the economy slows. Uh, and Dollar Tree should continue to do that. I mean, they, you, you kind of have an, an earnings annuity stream, but you also have a bit of a turnaround story. You know, the, if tariffs increase, you know, they get most of their products from China, and so their margins already are low, and they're going to get squeezed even further. And so they're, I think management realizes that the Dollar Tree concept is probably, uh, it probably needs to change. You know, I, I'm looking at uh, things like Five Below, that give you a little bit of wiggle room to go from a dollar tree, uh, you know, the dollar price point uh, uh, up. So I, I think there's an interesting annuity stream in the current 
Dollar Tree, but there's also a turnaround story because management understands that there are some things to be done, and the Family Dollar Store, which is part of their, their group, has been underperforming, and they understand that, that that needs to be turned around or spun off. Well, talk to us, too, about RH, and Jason and I were having some fun earlier in the week that it's, we still think of it as restoration hardware. It was such a great <laughs> name for a company. Why did you have to go and muck things up and, <laughs> and now call it RH? But this stock is up 59% this year. What's your play here? And there's a big um, short position, uh, about 38% of the float is being shorted right now. Yeah, that makes it a volatile stock. But, you know, if you have a company with good and increasing fundamentals, the short thesis gets more difficult to, uh, to deal with. So if I was a short, after this number they put up a couple of days ago that was just monster, I just don't understand what the short thesis is. And if you, you know, that's a lot of fuel for potentially higher and, you know, obviously it's going to get sucked down if the market's going down short term. But, you know, you have a $3 billion market cap company with $2.5 billion in sales with a, you know, return on invested capital of 40% plus. I mean, there's not a lot of stories out there that have that kind of, um, they have that kind yeah, of strength. Really. And they're building a one-of-a-kind, you know, kind of a store concept for for home furnishings. I mean, those stores are amazing. And now they have restaurants. I don't know if you've been to the one in New York that has the rooftop restaurant and and bar. I mean, they're thinking very differently about retail, and I think that's a good thing. And it's a pretty underappreciated story. Well, good stuff. Eric Clark, great to catch up with you. Portfolio Manager at AccuVest Global Advisors out in San Francisco. He joins us on the phone uh, from there. Certainly some good insights into a market where we need some help understanding. At least I do. And how wild. Those are some of the brands that we've been talking about uh, big time this week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.